Thanks so much, Diane. It's a great book, the book of Judges. Uh, and it challenges us in so many ways. Let me get myself organised here. Uh, at 42 years of age, there's nothing that I still enjoy more than going to theme parks and water parks. Call me a big kid, that's fine. I love it, it's great. It's one of my favourite things. I love going to theme parks and water parks, especially love going with my family and having a great time together. But my family know this to be true. Whenever we go to somewhere like this, I need to do my homework. I need to get there first and organise where we're going, get the map out to get the most of the day, and I need to make sure I do everything at least once, even the children's rides. That's how it's got to work. I've got to make sure I get the most out of the day, everything once, and then we'll go back for a second time. That's how it works in our household. Now, it's probably fairly annoying for the rest of my family, but it's the way I do it. It's the way things are. Now, perhaps you're not a a theme park and a water park person. Fair enough. Perhaps you're a museum person. But you might do the same thing. Get the map out and work out exactly where we're going to go and cover every piece of the museum. Or perhaps it's neither of those things. Perhaps it's just the shopping centre. And you want to go to every single shop you possibly can. I'm not sure if that's a thing, but it makes sense to me. So you look at the map and work out where you're going. Now, it's hard when new shopping centres open, isn't it? And it's particularly hard when that new Miranda thing opened. There was a new section and everyone had to work out where they were going. And, but it's even worse if you've ever been to Westfield at Hurstville. Has anyone ever been to Westfield at Hurstville? That's the worst shopping centre on the planet. You know why? Because I get lost there all the time. We used to live right there and that used to be our local Westfield. And I got lost all the time. The reason is there's not level one and level two and level three and level four. It's a big spiral that goes all the way down like this. So you go down the big spiral and then you think, oh, I don't know where I am. Am I on level one or not? The whole thing is level one. It doesn't make any sense at all. It's just spiraling down and down and down and then you go up and then you just, it's so confusing. Don't go there. There you go. There's my tip. Don't go there. I want to say to you this morning that the book of Judges is like that Hurstful Westfield. It's a big spiral all the way down, as we'll see as we go through. The nation of Israel gets worse and worse and worse. And if the book of Judges is like Hurstful Westfield going down and down and down in an ever-increasing spiral, then chapters 2 and 3 are the map. The map that show us what the book of Judges is going to look like for the rest of the chapters we'll read. And so before we get to the amazing stories of the people you'll know well, Ehud and Deborah and Gideon and, uh, and Samson and others, before we get to those amazing stories, first, we need to see the map, the overview, to help us to navigate the rest of the book so that as we walk our way through the spiral, we won't find ourselves to be lost like I am so often in Hurstville Westfield. This morning, we'll see the big idea of the whole book that will be repeated in the characters that we'll see as we go through over the next few weeks. This big idea that it's salvation in the midst of chaos. And this morning we'll see plenty of that. Well, this book is probably, as I mentioned last week, one of the most challenging books of the Bible. So I want to give you plenty of time later on to ask a question or two, and there'll be a chance to do that at slido.com and the hashtag is HBSP. And I also want to bring to your attention this book of the series. We, uh, we got rid of them all last week. They were all gone. 
and uh, so we've got a few extras. This is called Confronting Christianity, 12 Hard Questions for the World's Largest Religion. This book of the Bible contains all sorts of really hard questions that perhaps people in your workplaces might actually ask you, like why is there so much violence in the Bible, what's the deal with men and women in the Bible, and all of these questions are there in the book of Judges, and this is a helpful book for you, but also to tool you up to have those conversations at work or in your family as well. Uh, we These are retail 30, but we got them for 23, so if you'd like one, I've got them here uh, for this morning. Let me pray and we'll dive into chapters 2 and 3. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word in the book of Judges. We ask please now that as you uh, open your word to us, that we might, as it really is, hear your voice. We thank you so much that you have spoken to us clearly. And we pray that you might help me to do, uh, to do your word justice, uh, to get out of the way that we might see your character in this passage amidst the chaos of humanity. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder if you've got something in your family that is sort of passed down from generation to generation. It might be an actual thing, it might be a way of life, perhaps it's a recipe, perhaps it's a a thing you do at birthdays or Christmas, perhaps it's a way of life or a pattern of living in some way, or perhaps it's just a quirk that you haven't meant to pass on, but it's just continued to be passed on generation to generation. For a lot of us, this is how our families work. We work by passing things on from one generation to another. For me, growing up, and particularly as a teenager, I played heaps of cricket. My parents were mega supportive of my cricket and my life in many ways was all about playing sport in in particular, uh, sorry, sport in general, but cricket in particular. When it was not summertime, I would play indoor cricket. My first job was an indoor cricket umpire. And though my parents never pushed me into that sport, it was always greatly supported and uh, I was taken to grounds all over Sydney and, uh, and into New South Wales to play all sorts of games of cricket all the time. I wonder if your family is the same. I always said, as I had kids, that I would, like my parents, not push my children into that sport, but at six years of age I wanted to have a particular time with my son, Lathan. I said to Kel, I'm going to have some special one-on-one time with Lathan today. And so what we're going to do is we're just going to go to the Sydney Cricket Ground. I hadn't mentioned cricket really before that time. And we weren't going to any important game. We were going to a game that three people and a dog were at, New South Wales versus South Australia. No one was there. Nobody cared. But out we went. How did he react? Well, he loved it. He thought it was fantastic, he had the best day ever and from that moment on it really changed his outlook on life and on cricket. Now why did he react that way? Well for a start, he was there with his dad. His dad was probably happy for once and not stressed out like he sometimes is, so that probably made the scenario nice for him. It was a positive time with his dad. What's more... Even though he wasn't really uh, uh, brought into cricket at an early age, before the age of six, for me, it's always on the TV in the summertime in the background and, and he just would have picked that up. This is the way Dad relaxes. He likes doing this and he spends a bit of time with me when he does it. Now, of course, when you go back through my own personal family, my grandfather, uh, like myself, is a very high-level cricketer. He played cricket at all sorts of high levels. Passed it on to my parents, passed it on to me, passed it on to my boys and probably passed it on to the next generation as well. 
Now, this is never guaranteed, but it's often how families work, isn't it? It might not be cricket, of course. It could be a recipe, it could be just a way of life, it could be the thing you do at birthday or Christmas, whatever it is. God's people were always to pass on the message of God and his mighty works to the next generation. And they were always to do so, lest it be lost. In in the book of Judges, verses 6 to 10, we see a contrast of two generations speaking about the treasure of the message of God and his work amongst his people, which was easily lost. Look at verse 7 of chapter 2. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. In Joshua's day, in the first generation, the people by and large served God. But once Joshua died, the second generation were not the same. Look at verse 10 of chapter 2. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Here is a contrast in the generations. One generation knew the Lord and served him by and large. The other one did not know the Lord or serve him. How quickly things can change. Now, it's not as if the second generation had no knowledge, as if they they didn't know any things, any facts about God, any stories about what had happened to the people before them. Of course, they knew those things. But what verse 10 is telling us is that they did not know God personally. Now, whose fault is, is all of this? Well, we don't know. This passage doesn't tell us, but it does want to make the contrast between the two generations. Likely, there was some fault on both sides of the fence here. On the first generation for, passing, for not passing that message on faithfully, and the second generation for not listening faithfully to the message that was passed on. This was always the way God's people Where to operate, just look at a couple of passages on the screen. You'll see them from Deuteronomy 6 and then again in Deuteronomy chapter 11. Look at what uh, the Lord says through Moses. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And so it goes on in Deuteronomy 11, similar theme. You shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall teach them to your children, talking of them when you're sitting in the house, when you're walking by the way, and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Uh, And uh, and, and, well, this passage actually continues on in telling us uh, how that should happen. They were to pass this message on to their children and yet within one generation it was easily lost. We don't know how. Perhaps it was that the second generation simply thought that their previous generation was out of touch and old-fashioned and didn't know what they were talking about. That happens sometimes, doesn't it? And it's often said in our own age as well. But passing on and receiving the gospel of Christ is something that we ourselves need to work on, both in our own families and in the church family. 
We need to work on both telling the gospel to the next generation and the next generation need to work on listening to that gospel. It's often said that the gospel can be easily lost in a church community and in a family at large. It's often said that the first generation will believe the gospel, the second generation will assume the gospel and the third generation will outright reject the gospel. Or another way of putting it is the first generation are committed to the gospel of Christ, the second generation are complacent to the gospel of Christ and the third generation compromise the gospel of Christ. How often do we see it? How often do we see those who have grown up in the church end up being the ones that are most actively against the gospel of Christ? It happens all too often. And so it's important for us to ask, in the light of Judges 2 here, to ask ourselves the question, how can we, under God, pass on the treasure of the gospel of Christ in our own families and in our own church family? Well, I think there are two things that these passages, both in Judges and in Deuteronomy, show to us. The first is memory, and the second is modelling. First of all, memory. In the book of Deuteronomy... We are told that it's the reminder, the reminder of what God has done for you. It's to be frontlets between your eyes and written on your forehead and all of these strange analogies, but it's supposed to be right there in front of your eyes, as we would say. It's supposed to be a daily reminder. It's supposed to be a part of all that we say and do. It's not supposed to just be a memory that we have in a formal time, once a week or twice a week or three times a week, but intertwined to every part of life. When you're in the house and when you're on the way and when you're going somewhere else, it's an article of memory in our life. What we're doing right now is a reminder exercise. As we gather together in church, that's what we do. We don't come to hear unique things that we've never heard before. We come to be reminded. Because we, as human beings, are so easily forgetful, aren't we? I wonder when the last time was that you forgot something. Just forgetting your wallet or your keys or where they were in the house happens to me all the time. Now, of course, these things are important. But the gospel of Christ is even more important and we need to recognise we're easily forgetful. As we gather together today, you've gathered together to remind yourself and to remind one another of the great gospel truths of Christ. As we gather, as a church community, we are are reminding each other of what Jesus has done for us. Now we know, not only uh, in our own experience, but now we know statistically, that those who are regular church attenders are much more likely to hold on to orthodox Christian faith than those who are not regular church attenders. See, the person that regularly attends a church gathering and hears the word of God and is reminded about the truths of Christ will largely hold on to all of the orthodox truths of the Bible. But for a person that does not attend a church community for between one and four years the statistics tell us that they will lose 50% of the orthodox Christian faith in that time. And that if they don't attend for a 10-year period, they will only uh, comply or relate to 30% of what is an orthodox Christian faith. 
pretty dangerous when you think about it, isn't it? The person at work who claims to be a Christian but hasn't been to church in 10 years is only a 30% Christian. They don't believe half the stuff that we believe. Why? Because they're not being reminded over and over and over again. Now, this is just one example of how reminders work, but it's worth saying that old argument that's there, do you have to go to church to be a Christian? Not only the Bible says yes, but now the stats say it too. Because it's a reminder to us. A reminder to us of what God has done for us. Now, of course, it's not the only way. It's important that we remind ourselves and remind the next generation after us of the gospel of Christ, not only in formal activities, but in all of the informal ways of life. So that we can see see the world with a gospel lens. This is what it means to remind each other. But secondly, modelling is what Deuteronomy and the book of Judges tell us to do. Now, this is so hard, isn't it? Under God, this is an incredibly hard thing to do as we try to model the gospel life and lifestyle to the generations to come, whether in our own families or whether in the church family at large. And the reason this is so hard is because oftentimes the next generation don't actually, or they actually do see us behind closed doors. They see all the poor behaviour that nobody else sees, or at least that's the case in my household. They see what really motivates us. They see whether or not faith is an add-on to life or the centrepiece of life. Now, this is so hard for us, isn't it? Because in so many ways, we know we are not perfect and we know that because we're not perfect people, we will model imperfectly to the next generation. But this is why. One of the key things that has to be a part of our modelling to the next generation is just the centre of the Christian life. We call it repentance. We must be people of repentance. If in our own families the saying goes, I'm the dad and I'm right because I said so, or I'm the mum and I'm right because I said so, you see that on T-shirts sometimes, don't you? If that's the culture in our household, it's not a gospel culture. We're modelling the gospel in a completely unhelpful way. Now, that doesn't mean that the next generation can do what they wish and take the parents to task on whatever they want, but repentance needs to be part of the key story of the Christian life in our own households. This is what we must model because we are not perfect and we need the salvation that Jesus alone can offer. Not only this, the next generation will see what motivates us. We are so embedded in our culture, it is all too easy for us to mix ourselves, as we'll see in a moment, with the idols around us. What are the three biggest idols of our land? Well, I suspect they're this. Family, good thing, but turned into an idol. School, education, good thing, turned into an idol. And sport, good thing, turned into an idol. See, when someone in your family calls up and says, there's a family gathering on Sunday, you must be here. Do your children know that you never miss that family gathering? Now, you might say, it's just one family gathering a year. But our kids see our priorities. Or what about uh, with regards to school? I was struck by this a few years ago when there was a particular uh, church, a a Katoomba camp, like the ones from from, uh, base camp, right up against a school camp uh, for one of the schools that our youth go to. And there was a decision to be made for a lot of parents, which one will I, because I can't do both because the kids are going to be super tired. 
And for us, in our culture, and we don't see this because we're so embedded in our culture, we think to ourselves, of course they must go to the school camp. But why? Why not stay home from the school camp and attend the one that will teach you the Bible and be educated in the ways of God? For us, it's just not even a thought. If I'm too tired, I won't miss school, but I'll miss all sorts of other things that will formulate my faith. And of course, the same is true of sport as well. If there's a place in the diary, and I'm, I'm, I can be guilty of this too, there's a place in the diary It can easily be placed with a sporting event that we either play or watch that can easily take our attention. Now, of course, we can be over-legalistic with all of these sorts of things, can't we? But we can also question our own priorities with the three largest idols of our age, family, school and sport, and see whether what we're modelling to the generations to come is what we really want to pass on. Is what we really want to pass on that education is something you never miss, that education with God is something you can always miss? It's a small thing but something we must take care of. For reminder and modelling is the key, and amnesia leads to apostasy. This was the problem for the people of God, and it continues to be a problem for the church today. One of the largest things that we, uh, we focus on in the National Church Life Survey that was uh, done last uh, a little while ago that we're getting the results of soon is how well we retain the next generation of believers. And as a church generally, across the board, across all denominations, we are not great at doing this. And so we need to work hard at modelling and memory and passing on, not only as individual families, but a church family as well, to the next generation. Before I finish that point, be sure to do this this morning. If you've got kids in the kids program, thank the leaders for modelling their lives to your children this day. That's a wonderful thing that they're doing. Secondly, watch who you serve. Look at verses 11 to 13 of chapter 2. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them. And they bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. Things go bad really fast. In one generation, this all took place. They did evil in the sight of the Lord. What was it that they did that was so evil? Well, most of all, verse 12 tells us, it was that they abandoned the Lord. This abandonment is the evil they committed and it leads to idolatry. Now, idolatry in both the Israelite context and our own is almost never total. It's not as if we completely turn our back on God and go and follow a different God, a different way of life. It's, it's most often a mixed bag, as it was in the Israelite days. We know from chapter 1 and the early part of chapter 2 that the people of God were still sort of listening to God and taking the land as they should, but now we find out they were also serving the Baals and the Ashtoreths. God requires, however, all of their heart and our heart. He requires that we worship him alone and serve him alone. That's the key word here in verse 13, isn't it? They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals. Now, we are most unlikely to find any sort of temptation in our own day and age in temples and idols. I don't think I've ever had a conversation with anyone, a part of this church, 
who has found in any way that they're tempted to the temple up, uh, up at the end of Walker Street. Never, 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 never a temptation towards going to that temple and worshipping there. But we are all tempted, aren't we, to find our idolatry in other areas. As one writer has said, an idol is a counterfeit God that is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would hardly feel worth living. Our idols aren't temples and statues. Our our individualised, internal, inward, psychological world creates idols of a similar kind. You'll find that as as you were singing there today, I gave you this this sheet. Pull it out now. I think it's really helpful as a reference point for you. I'm not going to go through it all by any stretch of the imagination. But it's a great reference tool for you because our idols are not going to be things of, of, of stone and wood that we are going to bow down to. They're going to be things that are inward and internal and psychological. And so let's just have a look at the first two and then you can work through the rest uh, on your own at home and see how it goes. Uh, based on that uh, definition I just gave, it says, life only has meaning or I only have worth if I have power and influence over others. Well, that would be an idolatry of power. Life only has meaning and worth if I, have, if I am loved and respected by everyone, a certain person, a certain group of people. That's approval idolatry and so the list goes on. These are the ways in our own age that we find idolatry. And it's easy for us to sell out our whole lives in order to receive or get these things. The people of Israel served other gods and we ourselves can serve God, yes, but also serve these other things that are idols as well, whether it's achievement, work, independence, uh, helping, control, approval or any other such thing. It's something we must be aware of. And here in chapter 2 of the book of Judges, the people of Israel mixed their worship with the gods around them, the Baals and the Ashtoreths. And as a result, verses 14 to 15 tell us that God judged them with a just judgment. He punished them as he promised he would so that the nations themselves would not be driven out from amongst them any longer. It was a terrible time for the people of Israel. And though from time to time God would raise up judges, as we'll see in a moment, verse 19 of chapter 2 tells us that when the judge was raised up, when they were raised up, they would eventually die. And whenever the judge died, the people turned their back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods and serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or stubborn ways. Here is where we find the spiral. Things are getting worse and worse and worse. And while for a time their sinfulness was restricted, it did not go away. So much so, chapter 3, verses 4 to 6 tell us that the idolatry was uh, even worse. Look at verse 4. They were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord which he, obe- uh, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the uh, Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites and their daughters they took the- to themselves for wives and their own daughters they gave to their sons and they served their gods. Now their idolatry is tied up in relationships. Through marriage, their, uh, their interrelationships are now causing the idolatry to be stuck in the nation of Israel. This is why God's people, right throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament as well, were not to intermarry. 
They were to mix, not to mix worldviews, not to mix worship, not to compromise. That would often happen when you mix these worldviews and worship. Of course, the, the, the same remains true today for God's people. We often think of ourselves as so individual. We think of ourselves as partners in marriage, living separate lives. And we can live our own life, our own way, but we must be careful not to intermarry. That sounds strange in 2022, doesn't it? But what the Bible means for the Christian is, is not that we must not intermarry around colour or race or, or, or things along these lines, but faith. Marriage is to be in the faith for a person who belongs to Christ. Otherwise, they run the risk of danger, of idolatry and compromise. As the book of 1 Corinthians says, if you are to marry, marry in the Lord. This is a spiritual issue. I want to encourage you to think about this. To encourage you to think about how partnerships together in marriage in today's world is more than just two partners coming together, but an intertwining of personal relationships such that we share a worldview together. And that once we mix the faith worldview of God through the Lord Jesus Christ and the worldview of the world, we will find the mixture results in compromise. What are we to do about all of this? Well, I could mention all sorts of things, but let me share with you just for a moment a quote from a a great Australian man who lives out of Bundina, actually, Barry Webb, a great scholar. He says this. It's a longer quote, but it's really helpful talking about marriage Christian to non-Christian says this so what should be done for Christians who are contemplating taking such a step or have already done so first they need to know that we understand their situation and need the reality is that in many Christian communities there is a serious imbalance between the number of mature and godly young women and the number of similar young men second we need to do all that we can through hospitality and other means to provide opportunities for young Christian men and women to meet A little discreet matchmaking is not out of place, provided it does not put people under pressure. Third, while acknowledging their desires are normal, we should encourage them not to make finding a marriage partner their first priority, but to seek first the kingdom of God, sorry, that's my typo, and his righteousness. Loving service to God and others is the way to true fulfilment, whether or not that includes marriage. Fourthly, we should remind them that scripture is clear that intermarriage with unbelievers is not God's will for us and that to to take that path is an active, willful disobedience. It's not apostasy, but it may lead to it, as it did in Israel's case. At the very least, it will make complete oneness with their partner impossible and will create other difficulties, like the book of Proverbs says, the way of transgressors is hard. The book of Judges provides sobering examples of this, especially in the case of Samson and the disasters that follow in chapters 17 to 21, when everyone does what is right in his own eyes. Here we see the sinfulness of the people of God going down and down like a spiral over and over again, getting worse and worse as time goes on and then being intertwined by marriage itself. It shows the darkness of the book of Judges and gives us a depressing, hopeless feeling in our heart as we read the book. And yet, importantly, and as we finish this morning, there's a part that we've left out. A part that we've left out that speaks of the sheer grace of God. Look at verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. 
They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked who had obeyed their commandments, obeyed the commandments of the Lord and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who were afflicted and oppressed them. The book of Judges shows us that from time to time God would raise up a judge, a temporary leader, and though the people wouldn't listen and though sin was restrained, God still used them to deliver them from their enemies, bringing about peace. God was with them all the days of their life as a judge. And did you notice what the people of God did to deserve it? Nothing. God's people were not lovable. They were not deserving. They were sinful and getting worse like the spiral of Hurstville, Westfield, but out of the pity of God. He hears their groaning and sees their need to save. And so in this chapter, we have the the cycle of the book of Judges. You'll see it on your screen that we'll see all the way through this series. The people sin right at the top of the, the, uh, the screen there. God is angered and delivers them to their enemies. But the people cry out to God and God raises up a judge. Then there's a time of peace. But sadly, the people sin again and so the cycle goes on. And with every spin of the wheel of this cycle, things get worse and worse and worse. Both the people and the judges themselves get worse and worse. But God continues to be gracious to his people. And the good news is that's true for us as well. Just look at this passage from Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And through to verse 6 it says, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will, uh, will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, much more will be saved uh, by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. You see what it says about us? Weak, powerless, sinners, enemies of God, children of the evil one we're called in other places. This is who we are by nature. And yet God delivers us and gives us peace through the judge, the saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's true of our salvation, but it's also true of after our salvation as well. When we mess up in this life, when we struggle, when we do it tough, when we sin against God in so many different ways, God is always ready, not necessarily to fix our circumstances here and now, but he is always ready to give us ultimate deliverance in the kingdom of God and provide us forgiveness and restoration and the peace that he he offers to get us through this life right now. The sheer grace of God is on show here in Judges 2 and in our own lives. And so here, in Judges 2 and 3, we have the map. The map of the spiral of sin that will go on through the book of Judges. And we have had this morning, once again, the mirror held up to our own lives, haven't we? Asking that, uh, are we passing on in our own lives and in our own church family, the treasure of the gospel through memory and modelling? We've been asked the question, are we ourselves serving God or, or serving idols with God in a mixed way? 
And we've seen that even in the midst of ever-deepening sinfulness, perhaps in our own lives or in the lives of others around, God is always ready to express his sheer grace to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why the book of Judges is so wonderful, because we see salvation in the midst of chaos. Next week, we'll get to the stories, Othniel, Ehud and Shamgar, and we'll see what this cycle looks like on the ground. But for now, I'm going to ask if there's any questions and then we're going to pass uh, on to that. So let's take uh, 90 seconds or so, ask a question, slido.com, hashtag HBSP. Thank you for your questions. If you've got one, slido.com, hashtag HBSP. Uh, This one here, thank you for asking it, is uh, uh, nice and clear one. Is the judges cycle and downward spiral happening today? Uh, Yes and no. I mean, the the fact that there's sin in the world, it's always getting worse and worse and worse. It's not as if uh, the world is necessarily getting to be a better place. Uh, that's, uh, that's how it works out. Um, uh, however, um, the cycle itself is, is not working in the same way because Jesus is the one who breaks that cycle for us. He's the one that turns that cycle around. And so when we come to know Jesus and he breaks into our life in, uh, in, in, uh, and allows us to have faith in him, we find that for the first time we're able to uh, have peace with him that lasts so for the people of Israel, they had peace only until the judge died and there was no peace anymore and then they would sin and things would get worse again. But for Jesus, he becomes, uh, he, uh, he is our saviour, he brings us peace and that lasts forever and that's the good news. And so, uh, so no, the cycle is not happening in that way, in the same way today, although of course sinfulness continues in our world and continues to be a problem and uh, it's a problem that's fixed by Jesus as he brings peace to the world in that way. Uh, a couple of things... Uh, a couple of other things. Uh, the idolatry list that was handed out feels overwhelming. What can we do to avoid idolatry? Well, I think um, helpfully the bottom of that sheet will give you some ideas about that. Um, identifying is a helpful thing to do. Um, it's, the same, it's the same in any part of life when you're sick or suffering or anyway. If, if you are, can identify that there's a problem, you're on the way to recovery of that problem. That's how it works. And so that's the nature of the list. If it's overwhelming, maybe there's, there is an issue there to work on or to think about. Um, But the way to avoid idolatry is, uh, just as it says um, at the bottom there, uh, uh, replace your idols with a renewed passion for the the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'd say the way to do that is is to remind yourself of what the gospel is, what uh, what 
the Lord has done for you uh, and, and to revel in that. Um, that's the way to do it. Uh, and so it's the same thing over and over again that we come back to the message of Jesus Christ and to, to trust in him and find our passion and, uh, and meaning in that as well. Uh, the last question, why are these leaders called judges? Because that's what they literally did. They were, they were the judge of the people. You notice in verse uh, 18, though they were the judge of the people of God, they didn't listen to them anyway. So they were called judges. They were saviours uh, for a time, but the people didn't listen to them anyway. So that, that was the name of them. That were, they were called judges along the way. Um, last one, does the next generation lose the faith because of the failures of the last generation when they see their behaviours. Well, we don't know from this passage that that was the case. Uh, like I said, we don't know uh, who the fault lies with in this particular case, but we do know, we do know our own responsibility uh, to play our part in doing that in the next generation. Um, I don't think it's the fault that is in the first generation that will turn the second generation off the grace of Christ. That's the whole point, isn't it? That's why repentance is a key thing in modelling it through, because if, if you repent, then you really know that you need a saviour. But if you're right all the time, you don't need a saviour. That's, that's sort of how it works. Um, so I think the failure um, is actually a good thing. Um, failure is a good thing. And when we point that out to the next generation and I'm forgiven in Christ, then we're ready to be reconciled to God and to pass on the gospel of Christ to the next generation. I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us in the book of Judges. Thank you that it encourages us because we see your grace to us amidst all the hardship and chaos, not only in our own lives, but in the world around us. Please strengthen us that we might not be forgetful people, but see your gospel and grace clearly, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's uh, hear our next story from Moore College.